Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We've all done something that we've later regretted. It seemed so right at the time, you know, but in hindsight, it turned out to be really, really dumb. Maybe we were misinformed or lacking all the information we needed. Maybe it was our emotion or it was ego that prompted us down that path. Or maybe we just disobeyed what our gut was telling us. Hey, what's that big wooden horse thing outside the city gates? Let's bring it inside. That kind of thing. There's a bunch of them. Prohibition, New Coke, the Ford Edsel, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, or the doofuses at Mars for refusing to allow M&Ms to be used in the movie E.T. That's why Elliot ended up using Reese's Pieces. Listen, everybody has regrets, right? The best we can do is minimize the number we have. So how can we do that? Well, the first thing that we can do is study the mistakes of others. If Hitler had learned anything from Napoleon and not decided to invade Russia during the winter, what kind of world would we be living in now? Then there are all the bad decisions that we've seen in the music industry. Elvis agreeing to do all those bad movies. Decca turning down a chance to sign the Beatles. Van Halen hiring uh, Gary Sharon. Those are famous bonehead moves. But what about the worst career moves in the history of alt-rock? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here are ten of them. Listen and learn. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. Musicians are like anybody else. They are vulnerable to bad decisions. Many live in a bubble surrounded by sycophants who won't say no, or they're driven to doing something dumb by arrogance or fear or drugs or alcohol or road rage or something to impair their judgment. Or maybe it was just plain bad luck. The facts look bulletproof at the outset, but they turned out to be a little inaccurate, maybe very inaccurate. I've assembled a list of what I consider to be the 10 most terrible career moves in the history of alternative rock. Some were fixable, a few were fatal. But when I say fatal, I don't mean that anybody died. There were no deaths on this list, even though dying is often, but not always, the ultimate bad career move. I'm talking about straight artistic and business decisions that messed up the careers of some musicians and music industry people. The ones that they'd really like back, you know? Some of these decisions turned out to be mere bumps in the road. Others caused serious injury. And one or two, I guess you could call career suicide. We'll go in chronological order. And we're going to start with Lou Reed in 1975. Now, this move did not kill his career, but it really could have. It was a giant two-way FU. Lou was not getting along with the people at RCA, his record company. He wanted out of the deal, but was contractually obligated to deliver more albums. But there was nothing in the deal that prescribed what kind of album he had to deliver. So here's what Lou did. Holed up in his New York City apartment, he took two guitars tuned them in weird ways, and fiddled around with various reverb settings on his amplifiers. Then he put the guitars in front of the amps, turned everything up, and just let the guitars feed back on themselves. 
And as these guitars, well, essentially played themselves, he recorded everything on a small four-track machine. This is the sound they made. That's it. That's the album. Oh, a double album. Four sides of vinyl running 60 minutes. Actually, that's not quite correct. The first three parts of the album each ran for 16 minutes and one second. The fourth part had a locked groove at the end, meaning that the stylus and the turntable never ran out. It just played and played and played and played for infinity. Lou packaged everything up, delivered it to RCA and said, here's your album, I'm out of here. And like I said, it was one big FU from Lou to his label. RCA, as you might guess, was not pleased. So they decided to FU him right back. Okay, Jagoff, this is how you want to play this game? Fine. We're going to release this album. It will kill your career. We will bury you. And so it came to pass. Lou Reed's double album, Metal Machine Music, was released in July 1975. RCA also put it out on 8-track. So this screeching ran for its full 60 minutes without pause. And then this being an 8-track, it just cycled back to the beginning and started again. They even released a quadraphonic version, so you could get pummeled by four channels instead of just two. As you might guess, the reviews were horrible, and Lou's career took a big dive and didn't recover for a decade. Things didn't begin to improve for Lou until the late 1980s. Then came the revival of the Velvet Underground, and from then on, Lou was elevated to the level of elder statesman and credited as being one of the inventors of alternative rock, a reputation that he maintained until he died. During this time, though, a very weird thing happened. Metal machine music was reevaluated. It is now considered to be an important milestone in not just experimental music, but for industrial music and all the various forms of drone and doom rock that are out there today. It's been re-released on CD, it's available on iTunes, and other acts have actually covered metal machine music. A 10-person group called Zeitkratzer started performing it live around the turn of the millennium, and in 2014 released a recording of it. Their version is arranged for strings, wind instruments, piano, and um, accordion. Two things. If you can make it through any recording of metal machine music, you're either on a higher musical plane than the rest of the planet, or you're totally insane. And number two, it's unbelievably weird how the passage of time can change the appreciation of a recording. What began as a really dumb career move turned into revered art. Go figure. There's no doubt that this next move was really, really dumb and will never be regarded as anything else. On March 10th, 1979, Elvis Costello and his band were staying at a Holiday Inn in Columbus, Ohio. They were on tour and down in the bar having a drink, or 10 or 15. Also in the lounge was Stephen Stills, as in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And somehow Elvis's entourage got into a discussion with Stephen's people over music. Now we've got this angry British guy arguing music with an ex-hippie from the 60s. Everybody has had a few drinks. Okay, a lot of drinks. Can you see that there's going to be a problem? Elvis started saying some really stupid things and made some blatant racist remarks 
when Stephen Stills tried to bring up the musical contributions of Ray Charles and James Brown. Elvis's remarks were so out of line that a woman with Stephen named Bonnie Bramlett actually punched out Elvis, and it didn't take long for a full-scale fight to break out. Of course, when you have two famous people brawling in a bar over racial slurs, you just know that it's going to make the news, and it did. Naturally, the American media sided with Stephen Stills, and the bad publicity for Elvis Costello was incredible. In fact, the incident almost ruined Elvis's career in the U.S. He was toxic. No one in America wanted anything to do with him, and it would be years and years before things cooled down enough for Elvis's records to start selling in America again. Who knows how big Elvis might have been had he just kept his mouth shut that night. In 2015, I asked Elvis about this whole thing when I interviewed him about his memoirs, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. Can you imagine if that story broke today with social media? Well, it, 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 I wouldn't, you know, one of the things that, that I said in the book is that I've, I've tried to weigh, I have spoken, and I've never been evasive or denied that this happened, or tried to make, um, you know, some excuse about it. I tried to explain it. I tried to make an explanation of how you get to that point of insanity way back in the 80s. Um, and then a few occasions since then, there have been, there've been appropriate occasions to revisit it, like the writing of liner notes of the record that, were, that was concurrent with that. So I'm a, a little bit uh, disinclined now, having written this book as a final account of that, uh, to open it up to discussion, because when you sit and try to make a very clear statement, then you isolate one part of the story. That gets amplified for the reason that you just mentioned. The social media tells the story, you know, inaccurately, uh, in a hearsay manner, which other people have every right to be completely outraged by because they're just seeing it as hashtag racist or something, you know, whatever it is. Mm. And there is so much of that instant judgment uh, about everything, you know. And if you're living in a world in which, uh, in this millennium and century and you still have terrible things like Charleston happening, there are, you know, there are really worse things to worry about than some unfortunate drug fuels sort of nonsense from 37 years ago. There are some real serious things that haven't been fixed that are not my doing or my responsibility and words I may or may not have said didn't cause those things to happen, you know. But those those are the real. If you want to talk about social justice or inequality or prejudice, you can find a more productive line of inquiry than going over an old bar fight. In other words, I'm saying it's too serious a matter to be that frivolous about, or you know, that it's only in a show business memoir when all said and done. Up next, a really, really dumb business move by New Order. Having established themselves as a major force in music, New Order was somehow convinced in 1982 that they should invest in building and running a nightclub in their hometown of Manchester. So they did. The problem was is that they and nobody around them had any idea of how to run a nightclub. So they sunk millions and millions and millions of pounds into this thing, pretty much driving the band to the brink of bankruptcy. 
all those albums that they sold as New Order and as Joy Division before that were swallowed by the Hacienda nightclub. As a cultural institution, the Hacienda was very important. It was ground zero for much of the rave and dance culture that swept England in the middle and late 80s. But in addition to the endless money problems, there were issues with security and with drugs. And it had to do with the kind of drugs patients were using. Everybody was into ecstasy, which meant that they went to the bar and they didn't order alcohol. They wanted water. You can't run a mega club serving just water, no matter how much you charge for it. And then a couple of people died from either violence or drug overdoses. And the club finally closed for good in June 1997 and is now a condo. Just as well for everybody concerned. New Order and Temptation, the profits of which were largely lost in the sinkhole that was the Hacienda nightclub. If you want to read about that disastrous investment, bass player Peter Hook has a great book called How Not to Run a Club. It's it's really good. And it's amazing that a business could be run this badly. So there you go. Three terrible career moves. Next, when the firing of a founding member spelled the end of one of the greatest rock bands of all time. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. I've collected a series of terrible career moves, 10 of them, in fact, and we're going through them in chronological order. The Clash, one of the most important bands in the world in the late 70s and early 80s. But the personalities involved were too passionate, too volatile to remain together forever. Manager Bernie Rhodes had a game he liked to play. He enjoyed setting Joe Strummer and Mick Jones against each other. Mick responded by being difficult to work with and showed up late for rehearsals and recording sessions and refused requests to consider more tours. At some point in 1983, Bernie started saying to Joe, get rid of this guy, fire him. And Joe did. It was September 1st, 1983, and his firing was announced in what is called a clash communique. It is felt that Jones has drifted apart from the original idea of the clash. In the future, Jones's departure will allow Joe and Paul to get on with the job the Clash set out to do from the beginning. That's it. End of message. So, what happened? Let's ask Joe. Mick Jones, the Clash guitarist, we lost to artistic mania. I don't know. I'd have begged him to play the guitar. It's insane. I can't stand that kind of... I've, I've got too much... You know, the Clash has got a job on in, in, in trying to attempt its ridiculous aims you know i'm proud that we've got ridiculous aims because at least we ain't gonna underachieve and we can't i can't achieve these things if i have to beg the members of my band to play their instruments you know mick jones was the clash guitar player so i'm not gonna walk around i'm not gonna walk around begging him to play the guitar if he doesn't want to play the guitar he can play a synthesizer i don't care let him get on with it but best not to drag it's like it was like dragging a dead dog around on a bit of string you know how can you do anything or be anybody or try and live up to these ridiculous ideals when you're dragging a, a dead dog around on your back it's insane okay but could there be more to this we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. 
We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. A $6 billion con. It didn't take long for it to spread like wildfire. You gotta take a look at this really crazy gold stock. A buddy of mine got in at a dime. Which destroyed lives and devastated communities. Every little town across the nation, people have shares in this. We lost everything. And to date, no one has been brought to justice. Somebody knows more than we know. The $6 billion gold scam. From the BBC World Service and CBC. Search for the $6 billion gold scam wherever you get your podcasts. Story? It's been suggested that Bernie wanted Mick out because he wanted to set himself up as the musical director of The Clash. He did, after all, have a big role in the next era of The Clash, which resulted in the horrible Cut the Crap album in 1985. That record, featuring two new members of the band, was critically panned and a gigantic commercial disappointment. And not long afterwards, The Clash just sort of evaporated. There was no official breakup, no announcement, they just disappeared. A sad end to such an important band. Mick went on to have tremendous success in his new band, Big Audio Dynamite, while Joe was caught in record company hell for more than a decade. While he was respected for what he did with The Clash and for punk, he'd never again have the stature he had with The Clash. Firing Mick Jones? Terrible career, Mick Joe. Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. Terrible career move number four, The Clash firing Mick Jones in 1983. Joe Strummer thought he knew better than Mick, and he ended up paying for it. The same sort of thing happened with Dee Dee Ramone, one of the founding members of the Ramones. Dee Dee was probably the craziest and most reckless of the original lineup. He was a drug addict, a part-time rent boy, and battled with what we'd probably diagnose as some kind of bipolar disorder. He could be very violent and very impulsive. In 1987, he suddenly thought it was a good idea to launch a solo career as a rap artist. He called himself D.D. King and recorded a hip-hop track called Funky Man. And, um, oh, God, it's bad. And let's not even talk about the video. Alarm clock ringing, it's time to get up. It's time to do that funky strut. I'm a funky man, I got funky bones. I'm a funky man, my name is D.D. Ramon. Dee Dee Ramone, the guy who played bass in all those legendary early Ramone songs, trying to be a rapper. Terrible career move, dude. Dee Dee left the Ramones, tried to get back into punk rock, but never achieved much success as part of a band, working with bands, or as a solo artist. He ended up dying of a heroin overdose on June 5th, 2002. The next guy we want to talk about here is Jason Everman. Now, you might not recognize the name even after I tell you he was part of two of the biggest grunge bands of all time. One of those bands was called Nirvana, and the other was called Soundgarden, and he quit them both. Let's start with Nirvana. If you know your Nirvana history, you'll remember the story of the Bleach album, which was recorded in 1988 for a cost of $606.17. Kurt Cobain didn't have that kind of money, so Jason, who was a friend of the band, stepped in to pay the bill with money he earned as a commercial fisherman. As a way of saying thank you, Jason was credited in the liner notes of Bleach as having played on the album, even though he didn't contribute a single note. However, this does not mean he was never a member of Nirvana. He was. There was a point where Kurt was thinking about adding a second guitarist. Jason tried out, 
and he won the gig. This was February 1989. Jason's first show with Nirvana was on February 25, 1989, at the University of Washington. He was with the band when they started to get noticed, including when a bunch of journalists came over from England to see what was happening in Seattle. He was with the band on June 15th when Bleach, that record he paid for, was released. And he was with Nirvana when they recorded this cover of a Kiss song at Evergreen State College. That's Nirvana covering Kiss in June of 1989, and on rhythm guitar on that recording is a guy named Jason Everman. Unfortunately, Jason was not getting along with the rest of the band. The boredom of being on the road really got to him. He got all quiet and gloomy and withdrawn, not talking to anyone. He just wasn't having any fun, and it really, really bothered him. By July 18th, 1989, it was totally intolerable. So after one final show at the New Music Seminar at the Pyramid Club in New York City, the band canceled the rest of the scheduled tour and drove home 50 hours straight without saying a word to each other. When they got home, Jason was let go, or he quit. Whatever the case, it was fine with him. But not long after that, though, Soundgarden's manager asked if he'd like to be their new bass player, which sounded okay, so he joined up for one EP, 1990's Loudest Love, and one tour, And at the end of that tour, he either quit or was fired. We're not entirely sure. So that's two of the biggest grunge bands of all time. And he left both of them. But things did work out for Jason. After Soundgarden, he joined the army. Jason's first deployment was somewhere in Latin America in an anti-drug operation. After 9-11, he became part of the 2nd Radio Battalion and an elite member of the Special Forces serving several tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. He was like one of those bearded members of SEAL Team 6 roaming through the rural provinces of Afghanistan on horseback looking for Taliban bad guys. He became something of an idol to other members of the force. He was that good. He was the Army's equivalent of a rock star. Then, when he received an honorable discharge in 2006, he enrolled in Columbia University to study philosophy, spurred on by the writings of a Renaissance thinker named Benevito Cellini. He got his bachelor's, and now lives quietly in rural Washington state with his army gear and guitars. So, bad career moves on the music side, but that did lead to an amazing career in the military. Wild, huh? Four more bad decisions to go. Hang tight. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. The title of the show is 10 Terrible Career Moves, and this is number seven, and it's one of the worst on the list, and it is nothing short of career suicide. October 1992, Sinead O'Connor is on a roll. She has a major hit with her I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got album. But like Elvis Costello, she just couldn't keep her mouth shut. Okay, wait, back up. May 1990, she refuses to appear on Saturday Night Live because comedian Andrew Dice Clay was the guest host. August 1990, she refuses to allow the Star Spangled Banner to be played before a show in Homedale, New Jersey. Big medias think about that. February 1991, she refuses to appear at the Grammy Awards despite being nominated in four categories because she says the industry is corrupt. March 1991, she says something that was interpreted as taking the side of Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War. And then we get to October 3rd, 1992. Saturday Night Live asks her to appear again, and this time she accepts. All goes well in rehearsals. 
She sang a Bob Marley song called War. And as she did, she held up a picture of a child refugee. Absolutely fine. No problem. But when it came time to perform it live on the show, she held up a picture of Pope John Paul II instead of the child. And as she got to the word evil, she began tearing it up. At the end of the song, she said, fight the real enemy. Let's have a listen to what happened. We have confidence in the victory of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. No audience reaction. None. Cut to commercial. Why did Sinead O'Connor do this? Well, obviously because of her long-standing grievances against the Catholic Church, but also because she was inspired by Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats. When they appeared on Top of the Pops in the 70s, Bob tore up a picture of John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John from the movie Grease. Sinead said she just made the leap to the Pope. Okay. Uh, and here's another fact. It wasn't just any picture of the Pope. The one that she tore up was the one that had hung on her mother's bedroom wall since JP2 became Pope in 1978. The number of complaints for this were absolutely staggering, and that pretty much sunk her career for good. NBC received almost 5,000 complaints. The blowback in the media was intense, and her career never, ever recovered. Terrible career move number eight was bad for a couple of people. It was bad for the Happy Mondays because they failed to deliver an album, but it was worse for Tony Wilson and Factory Records because the decision to allow the Mondays to record the album in Barbados cost so much money that it bankrupted the entire record label. The band went with Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz of the Talking Heads, the producers of the album, to Eddie Grant's giant colonial house, a place called Blue Wave Studios. And the plan was to separate singer Sean Ryder from his supply of heroin. And to get him through, he was given a case of methadone with a four-week supply, which his minder then dropped at the airport, shattering all four of the 500-milliliter vials. But the plane was leaving and they had to go. There was no time to get any replacements. And when they got to Barbados, Sean looked for a substitute for his methadone and for his heroin. He found crack. And when the Mondays ran out of money, he and Bez, the band's dancer, started selling furniture out of Eddie Grant's house to buy more crack. At one point, it said, they were up to 30 rocks a day. At about 40 cents a rock, as opposed to the 50 bucks a rock back home, this was a bargain that they just couldn't pass up. Bez also got into a car accident with a rented Jeep, breaking his arm so badly he had to have it set in a mechanical brace. On another occasion, singer Sean Ryder drove another rental car through the front of a bar. Meanwhile, keyboardist Paul Davis wrote off three rental cars. I don't know the exact number of wrecked vehicles, but it was said to be more than 10. It was like they were on a mission to spend as much of Factory's money as they could, and they did. This went on for three months. Tony Wilson says that when he flew in to sort things out, one of the first things he saw was Sean and Bez pushing one of Eddie Grant's couches down the road where they were going to trade it for more crack. Some recording was completed, but it wasn't very good. Only one song was finished. Everything else was half-baked at best. And it didn't help that Sean um, forgot to write any lyrics. 400,000 pounds down the drain. The most expensive indie record never made. When it was finally finished, the album was called Yes, Please. Exactly one single was released, and it didn't make it any higher than number 31 on the British charts. 
Name of the song? It's appropriately called Stinkin' Thinkin'. Stinkin' Thinkin' from the Happy Mondays. Factory Records never recovered from the money spent in Barbados. Factory declared bankruptcy in November of 1992, about six weeks after the Mondays album came out. Here's another example of career suicide. It involves Nick Oliveri and his ability to alienate himself from one of the better rock bands of the 21st century. He had a really great gig with Queens of the Stone Age. And then he did something stupid. Really stupid. Details are a bit murky, but it seems that Nick was fired from the band because he'd been physically abusive to his girlfriend. Eventually, though, there was a truce, and it looked like Nick was going to be allowed back into the band. But then on July 12, 2011, a SWAT team descended on Nick's house. There was a standoff with Nick barricaded inside the house, and the charge was that he had assaulted his girlfriend. Eventually, the SWAT team got into the house and arrested Nick on a variety of charges, including ones for drugs and weapons. And even though he faced up to 15 years in jail, he got a plea deal for probation and community service. This also wasn't enough to derail his return to Queens of the Stone Age, because Nick can be heard on the 2013 album like Clockwork as a contributor. Here he is from the days when he was a full-fledged member and before he started doing things that were really, really dumb. Queens of the Stone Age, back in the days when Nick Oliveri was still in the band. But then he made some dumb career moves and he was bounced. One more terrible career choice. And I know we've talked about this one before, but it's such a cautionary tale that it's worth revisiting. And it's all about Chris Cornell. For reasons we still don't understand, Chris decided that after Audio Slave broke up, he needed a change in direction. So he hooked up with Timbaland, the hip-hop producer, who had worked with everyone from Beyonce to Janet Jackson to Justin Timberlake. So, grunge vocals made it to hip-hop beats. What could possibly go wrong? Well, the results were catastrophic. I remember sitting in the office of one of the executives at Cornell's record label as he played us the album, and he kept looking at me and going, Great, right? 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 Uh, no, dude, it's pretty effing terrible. I think that's that's all we need to hear. That's the sound of Chris Cornell derailing his music career by releasing a hip-hop-ish record designed for, I don't know, some dance floor somewhere. Fortunately, though, he was able to recover from the debacle. But it was touch and go for a while. No wonder he agreed to get Soundgarden back together. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. We all make dumb mistakes. It is going to happen. The important thing is that we recover from them. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. We've seen examples of both situations, and I want to give you one more. In 1999, Kevin Rowland, the singer for Dexy's Midnight Runners, remember the song, Come On Eileen? He insisted on posing for the cover of his solo album, My Beauty, wearing heavy makeup, panties, and stockings. The image was such a turnoff to his fans that this record initially sold just 500 copies. It's taken all these years to sell just 20,000, and many of those sales were just for the weirdness of the cover. 
Reach me anytime at alan at alancross.ca. I read and answer all my email myself. And you should also look at my website at journalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day and comes with a free newsletter that you really should subscribe to because it's, it's good. You'll get all kinds of music news in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern Time weekdays. And we can also connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. So we, we really should do that. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.